Esther chapter 8, verse 3. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Uh, so one thing that's really great about having multiple pastors to serve you is seeing their different personalities, their diversity. Um, Joey's got his yellow polo on today, and I've got my yellow tie that wasn't planned, so maybe we need to try to be more diverse next week. But um, we are, We're very different people. Uh, one, one of the things that Joey loves to do that I care very little about is golfing. Um, just being honest. <laughs> what were you doing yesterday, Joey? You were hitting a golf ball, right? I saw a picture of you out there swinging the thing. I'm like swinging a baseball bat. I don't even know how to, how to posture that, right? Um, but uh, you were out there uh, golfing yesterday. I know that's something you, you love to do and really enjoy doing. And I was kind of thinking about uh, if I were to go golfing um, this week and I approached, you know, the tee where I would tee off, I guess, is that what you call? And you, you try to drive it as far as you can towards the green, Right? Um, so if I were to go and do that and just whack the hang out of the ball and just feel really proud of myself and walk away, would I have done anything? Would I have accomplished anything? When is the, when is the course finished? In the hole, or yeah, the 18th hole, either way. I'm not, I haven't really done anything just because I can hit a ball really far, right? There's a, there's a skill to get it to the whole, to finish the game. And so we're in Esther chapter 8 this morning, uh, and she isn't done either. Maybe you thought last week she finally approached the game. What's left, right? Why isn't the book over? It would be kind of just like going to the driving range and getting your, um, your club out and just hitting it really far, but not actually finishing the course. The moment we were all waiting for took place last week. Esther finally made her request to the king, God had done this great, marvelous work, silently intervening in the plans of this pagan Persian government, bringing a Jewish girl into the citadel as the queen uh, through dangers, toils, and snares. She, she made it to that position. Uh, whether it was good or bad, she was there, and God did it. Uh, and she, made, she was the substitute for Vashti, who sinned against the king by not going out when she was called. She was banished. Esther ended up being her replacement, and they had a new character in chapter 3 named Haman, who you know about, who made this decree because he hated Mordecai so viciously that all the Jews would be killed, annihilated, destroyed on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and that day was quickly approaching. He is known in this book as the enemy of the Jews, and last week, he died. Right? Found out that 
because Esther went before the king uh, and told this, this plot that the king really already knew about and gave his approval for, uh, but kind of saw what Haman was plotting and decided to hang him on Mordecai's gallows. And then they lived happily ever after. Oh no, we still got three chapters left, right? So this is like the fifth quarter. We're getting on the green. We're trying to putt our way in. Haman is dead. Mordecai has risen to glory and honor. The king has spared Esther's life. But there are still 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia who have been instructed to murder all Jews in their sight on Adar the 13th. Right? That's the plan. That hasn't changed. And I need to apologize. You know, I, I, observation is so key to studying the Bible, and I think I kind of missed a key element in, in my understanding of the timeline. Uh, I thought we were closer to the month of Adar than we are. Uh, we're, we're actually in the third month of the year, so it's still about nine months from the month of Adar. You can go back to chapter 3 and see they made that first edict on the first month of the year, and they decided that it wouldn't be until the 12th month that this day of reckoning would take place. So I just want to be humble and apologize. I kind of missed my timeline a little bit, but that's where we are. We're in the third month of the year, uh, waiting for the 12th month. There's been character reversal. The entire decree isn't reversed yet. Something must be done before Adar gets here. The curse must be reversed. That's what we're doing this morning. Curse must be reversed. Number one, Esther pleads with the king. Let's go through it together. Verse one. On that day, King Ahasuerus, or your Bible might say King Xerxes, same guy, gave to the queen Esther uh, the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So the same day that Haman was killed, the king gave Esther all of Haman's property. The house of Haman was given over to Esther. That, that means his belongings, his honor, his inheritance, all that was Haman's was now Esther's. The enemy of the Jew had now all of his stuff, his name, given over to the queen of the Jews, right? Reversal. You see that change going on. And then after that, Mordecai makes his first appearance after his own public parade, which you might remember from a little while ago. He approaches the king and the queen, explaining his true relation to Esther. Uh, I'm actually her cousin, adopted father, whatever you want to call me. I raised her, uh, and while the king is apparently feeling generous, giving away property and inheritances, why not give something to Mordecai too? So he takes back off the ring that once he gave to Haman, apparently he got it back before he was killed, got the ring back, and then gave it to now Mordecai. Reversal, right? The enemy of the Jews, now Mordecai, is wearing the ring. That's a lot of promotion in two verses. And if we get ahead of ourselves a little bit, and I just come out swinging, you know, maybe a golf club or a baseball bat, whatever, we already see a picture of the gospel this far forward. I'm thankful for Keaton's prayer. The king's wrath was poured out on Haman. We saw that. Now the king is able to treat Esther and Mordecai as his own family giving them the inheritance of the one who took the wrath and the judgment. Doesn't that sound familiar? After Christ took our punishment for sin, what did we receive as believers? 
Jesus continued to preach throughout the Gospels a promise to inherit eternal life. Inherit eternal life. And the only way to inherit eternal life is for the eternal person to die. And the only way that he's going to die is not by old age, but he would be killed. He must perish so that we could live and have his inheritance. And that satisfied the Father's wrath for our sin. And the Father can now look at us as family. Paul and the other New Testament letter writers expound on this. They, they, they say, because Jesus is alive, victorious over death and sin and hell, he is able to guard that inheritance in the heavenly places until we acquire possession of it, Ephesians 1. Colossians 3 says that this inheritance is our reward after a life of serving Christ. 1 Peter 1 refers to this same inheritance as imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Let me remind you that your inheritance is in Christ, who went to the gallows so that you could have it, so that you could obtain it. Your inheritance is not on this earth. You can get a 401k, you can get an attic full of stuff, but when you die, the only thing you'll have on your mind is the inheritance that Christ purchased for you at Calvary. How true that song is. One glimpse of Jesus, we won't even think about all the mess we've went through here. The more we loosen our grip on the things of earth, the more we reach for the things of heaven. Right now, this very moment, if you're in Jesus, your eternal life is being guarded at the Father's right hand. And you know why he's guarding it? Because we couldn't keep it. We'd lose it. Amen? I can't keep it. Christ died so you could obtain it. He rose from the dead so you could keep it. And he is coming back so you can receive it in full. I strongly encourage you as your pastor to think about this inheritance more often than your earthly inheritance that you might receive one day. There are plenty of preachers out there preaching a gospel that promises earthly inheritance. And it's a lie. Satan has been promoting from the beginning. This is false teaching. Jesus didn't go to the gallows to give us healthy bank accounts and a, and a wealthy lifestyle. Jesus went to the gallows to give us eternal life. That's just the Bible, right? So we have an inheritance that awaits us because of what Christ has done. Let's live like that inheritance is the best thing we own. And may we continually recall the cross that allows us to obtain it. But, but let's think about Mordecai and Esther here leading up to this moment. What have they done to, in, to earn this inheritance? What has Mordecai done to earn the ring? What has Esther done to earn the, the house of Haman? They lied about their true identity for years and years and years because of fear of persecution. Last time I checked, liars don't receive any worthy inheritance, especially those that deny the faith as they have done. Fear was running their lives. Esther had already lost her parents. They weren't that wealthy. Mordecai managed to get a job at the Citadel. They didn't want to jeopardize the one thing they had going, so they hid. They did not reveal their true identity. This is what happens when fear rules our lives. Listen, our trust in Christ is paralyzed when we're overwhelmed with fear. We end up lying because we think it's going to protect us, but it actually digs deeper holes for us to try and get out of. We worry more about what people think 
than about what God says and end up making people our God, trying to please them instead of our Savior. Fear is emotional slavery. Don't subject yourself to fear. But we're addicted to it for some reason. And the world knows we're addicted to it, right? You don't have to watch the news very long to see what they're reporting about, the things that are gonna make you fearful. Because we're addicted to it, and it sells. Um, Jim Gaffigan is a comedian, and he has a funny bit on the news. He says, I watch a lot of cable news because I enjoy being depressed, right? Hurricanes, war, murder, rain, adultery, tornadoes, more rain, right? This is what our news is giving us. We wonder why fear ravages so much of our daily life. The very act of being afraid, I believe this with all my heart, listen, the very act of being afraid has worse consequences on our health than the thing we're actually afraid of. Isn't that true of what happened here for Mordecai and Esther? They hid themselves for fear. Fear ruled their lives for years and years and years and years. And they finally let it out after prolonging the inevitable redemption that was ordained by God to happen, the one thing they were so afraid of was letting the truth come out and facing their consequences, and the consequences were awesome. <laughs> they, they, they got all of Haman's possessions and the king's own ring. What I want to show you is that because God is sovereign, Mordecai and Esther had no good reason to fear. What happened when they finally told the truth? They received an inheritance. Fear doesn't help. Fear hurts. Fear lies to us, telling us that something bad will happen when in all likelihood that bad thing probably won't happen. What happens when we go to the doctor? We get some diagnosis or maybe an unsure diagnosis. What happens when, when we're abandoned by a friend or a loved one and they're not texting us back or not calling us back? Things run through our mind. What, what about when you have a difficult decision to make and the outcome is just unknown, so you're not sure which way to go. Fear only makes these things worse. How many times have we been fearful about sharing our faith only to find out that when we open up our timid mouths, God uses it, and it's a fine conversation about heavenly things. How many times have we been fearful about some potential danger only to see that thing we were so scared about just evaporate right before our eyes each new morning? If something terrible does happen, has God left his throne? Never, never. Because Jesus is alive and because we've seen God's power displayed through the book of Esther, we should cast our fears on him who cares for us. I hope that Esther learned that. I hope that Mordecai learned that. I beg that you learn it, Main Street. Fear is not worth our time. Look at verse three. Maybe she was learning. She begins to portray more fearlessness perhaps than ever before. Verse three, then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. Let's stop there. She falls to the ground. She's weeping. She's pleading to avert the evil plan plan of Haman. I and mean, that's what we started out with, right? Just because Haman's dead don't mean the plan has changed. All these letters went out through 127 provinces to kill Jewish people. And in the context, the last three requests here, she, she keeps her royal stately approach. She, she's usually always cool, calm, collected, going before the king. This time she just loses it. 
right? She, she gets down before the king, weeping, crying. And let's compare that to Haman for a minute. What was the last thing we saw Haman doing? Weeping, begging, crying for Esther to spare his own life. And now Esther is begging hysterically before the king, not to save her own life, but to save the life of her people, to save the life of the Jews. Make note of that, huh? We want to find the gospel here? There it is again. Because the king loves her, as we've seen him do, he pulls out the scepter. She stands up to make her formal request, and she gives now the formal thing, the four-part, you know, if, if I please the king, and if I found your favor, and if it seems right before the king, if I'm pleasing in your eyes. In other words, for your good pleasure, dearest king, this is all about you and what, what is best for you. Write a new letter. Write a new letter to revoke Haman's decree. I cannot bear to see the destruction of my kindred. See, this wasn't about genocide, right? That, that wouldn't have worked with the king. He doesn't necessarily think genocide is bad. He sealed it the first time. That argument won't work. The argument here is about his glory and about the kindred of the queen. The king has been overly accommodating so far for her and Mordecai. Will he continue to give and give and give and give? Number two, a new edict is made. Verse seven. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I've given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps, to the governors, the officials of the provinces, from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script, to its own people, in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, and sealed it with the king's signet ring. We'll stop there. I think, at first, the king's a little surprised. I've already given you Haman's house. I've already given you the king, uh, the, the ring. Behold, look, like, really? I mean, was this not enough? Why are you so worried about these people? You know, I don't think the king is trained in thinking about others very often. That's not something he's used to doing. But okay, I guess, if this is what you want, you know, he doesn't have the capacity to think purely uh, about the good of others. But he helps out anyway. If it please the king, and if she finds favor in his sight, if it seems right and pleasing in his eyes, for Esther, she can hardly bear it. No big deal to the king, because he has all he needs, but I guess it wouldn't hurt to keep the Jews around. So I'll, I'll, I'll Hold up the golden scepter, let's, let's do it. There is one problem, though. Any edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. We can't just change the law, which is funny to hear the king saying, saying that based on his morals, but it can't be changed. It can't be taken back. But here's what we can do, Esther. Take that ring I just gave to Mordecai and we'll write a new edict in regard to the Jews. We'll write a new decree. So we can't revoke the original law, but we can make a new one that will contradict it. Man, he's a good politician, huh? Um, 
And here's what we need to see piercing through Persian government and into heavenly realm. Our God's laws are irrevocable. Our God's laws, his word, is irrevocable. They're true, unchangeable, and eternal through the ages. Many have tried throughout history and are still trying today to revoke the word of God. And I'm not talking about taking the Bible out of public schools and taking down the Ten Commandments. I know that'll get some amens if I rant on that for a while, won't it? But what I'm talking about here is the false teachings that have floated through civilizations concerning God and his laws, which are nothing less than blasphemy and heresy. I'm talking about those who have denied God as the one true and only maker of all things, the Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one, who is righteous and the holy judge of all creation. I'm talking about those teachers who have denied the God nature or the man nature of Jesus Christ. I'm talking about those who have denied the final atonement of Christ's sacrifice for sinners. Those who have denied the Holy Spirit as the divine third person of God who convicts sinners and illuminates the hearts of man to the gospel of Jesus. Those who have denied depravity of humanity, fallen and separated from God as a result of sin. Those who have denied the eternal consequence of sinning against the perfect God of all, which is punishment by death and hell. Those who believe that there are other ways to renew our broken relationship with God and obtain salvation besides trusting in his death, burial, and resurrection. Those who believe that the church is anything less than the living body of Christ, which exists to bring him glory and bear one another's burdens and spread his fame throughout all the earth. What do all these false claims uh, boil down to? An attempt to revoke the word of God. These are a result of someone reading God's irrevocable law and taking things out of it and adding things into it, making every attempt possible to revoke it for personal gain. At its deepest core, it is not a just, just a denial of sound doctrine. It's a denial of God and his word itself as an optional source of truth rather than the only source of truth. Family, I hope you know that this word, this book is irrevocable and this is why we trust it and read it and preach it the way that we do. We want this word to saturate our congregation. Perhaps we see this most prevalently in the rampant engagement of sins by the people of God. If we don't believe the word of God, we have no problem with sin. If we revoke the word of God, we sin all we want. When we see our own members of the body partaking in drunkenness, sexual immorality, gossip, lying, idolatry, just plain not coming to church. We have a responsibility to go to each other in sin and say, brother, do you not know that God is irrevo God's word is irrevocably true? You are revoking God's word by your lifestyle, which is a grave sin. You're not only hurting yourself, you're sinning against the Holy One. And here's the good news, try as we may, we can never actually revoke it. We can make new laws and write against it, but we cannot revoke the written, true, kept through time law of God. The truth will always be the truth, and the truth will always set men free, and the truth will never be erased, which is why it's our job as God's people 
to uphold his irrevocable law with every fiber of our being. The king of Persia's law was irrevocable, which points us to our God's law, who is also irrevocable. They made a new law in this chapter, and what they wrote might trouble you. Let's look at verse 9. The king's scribes were summoned at that time the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, satraps, governors, officials, provinces. Skip ahead a little bit, I'm sorry. He sent the letters down on uh, verse 11, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day, throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. So this is what they decided to write. The Jews in every city now throughout the entire land of Persia and every province would be allowed to gather and defend their lives by anyone or any armed force that came against them to attack them, including women and children and plundering their goods. In essence, the law wrote, retaliate, retaliate. Verse 13 says they all must be ready to take vengeance on their enemies. And because of the way it was worded, it's clearly that they're trying to parallel this with the first edict that was made, right? It's on the 13th day of the month of Adar uh, that everybody would be responsible to do this thing. And we've got another law now saying the Jews can kill anyone who attacks them on the 13th day. Maybe this is just going to cancel each other out. We'll see all this take place in, in chapter 9. But here's what we need to talk about for now and this is kind of a hard question, but does Esther 8 teach us that there are times when it's okay and permissible by God to destroy, kill, and annihilate? Is that okay? Even women and children, it says. Did Mordecai overstate this law a little bit? Well, let's, let's remember the history. Maybe you should go back and listen to, to sermon on the podcast from, from chapter 3. There's a war that God has been involved in since the days of Exodus. The Amalekites versus the Israelites. Saul was commanded to go and kill all the Amalekites by God himself for their rebellion and their uh, raging against his people and, and to not leave one remaining. Of course, we know how the story went, right? He left the king Agag alive. Samuel had to hack him to bits because he didn't do it. And then we, we have this promise by God that they're going to be at enmity, at war with each other from generation unto generation unto generation. Saul disobeyed, and now God is going to finish the job with Mordecai, his descendant. Mordecai was now going to finish what the patriarch left incomplete. This is holy war declared by God himself. And so we say, okay, is God still declaring wars then today? And my answer is yes and no. God's holy physical war was something that only took place in the Mosaic time period up until the coming of Christ. It wasn't God's only way of judgment either. 
You can see him many, many times sending down literally hellfire and brimstone on the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. He also used physical wars, like the one at Jericho, to judge mankind. It was always some form of judgment against those who opposed Yahweh and his people with arrogance and rage. God is overwhelmingly patient, though, in his judgments. When Abraham asked God if he would still judge Sodom, if there were any righteous people, God's response was an emphatic, no, I will not judge the people if there's any righteous people there. Whether he sends a flood in the Old Testament or the sword of his people, this was his holy judgment taking place after decades and decades of patience and compassion. But when Christ came, he told Peter to put away the sword. Don't strike the homeboy's ear. Put the sword away. In Luke 9, James and John even get this bright idea because the Samaritan village doesn't receive Jesus very well. And they say, Jesus, do you want us to, to cast down fire from heaven on them because they didn't welcome you? And he says, no. He rebuked them for thinking such things. Christ initiated salvation not only for the Jews but for the Gentiles and thus created a new people for God's glory called the church. And this church was to be a dwelling place for the people of God to fight a new war with the power of the Holy Spirit. We're now in the age of a spiritual war, battling not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over the present darkness. We are now in a war in which we wear the armor of God to fight spiritual battles over the souls of mankind who are lost in sin and desperate for a savior. We fight for righteousness. We fight to kill sin and preach the gospel. This is the war that we're marching forward now as God's people. The moment any pastor or priest commissions you in a war against a people group in the name of Christianity, you have found yourself in some type of dangerous cult or jihad Muslim type movement. And it's false. Our war is with the Spirit of God over the souls of men, using the arm in Ephesians 6 until Jesus comes back and the holy war will continue and God's vengeance, his judgment, the sword will be brought back out as he judges the whole earth. As for this text, I, I, you know, I wanted to address this in case you're thinking it. I don't want you to be afraid here or appalled. This is simply the Lord keeping his promises. He said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who dishonor you. Zeresh, the wife of Haman, said it perhaps just as well. You mess with the Jews, you get the rod of Yahweh. And we praise God for his promise keeping here, his love for his people, even when they haven't been faithful to him. Let's, let's end it here. Number three, joy floods the city. This is how all of Persia is going to react. Verse 15, then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor and in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. I love it when you guys get to grinning over there because we see this full reversal 
taken place, right? Mordecai comes out in his kingly attire, making his big appearance after his last parade, and, and Susa just throws a party. What was the first edict, right? When Haman made the first edict, all of Susa was thrown into confusion. There was weeping and mourning and wailing in the city. And now with this new edict, they got their party hats on, they're throwing a feast, they got those things that go, you know, make the noise when you blow in it. They're, they're having a good time because of this new edict. But here's the thing about this great reversal. The unfortunate negligence of their one true sovereign provider remains the same. They rejoice, but the praise, the object of their praise remains unknown. Why do they rejoice? Who are they praising? And so God is asking us this morning, do you praise the Lord for the good in your life? We asked that question when they were weeping and fasting and doing all that. Now we ask it about the good. Do you praise the Lord for the good in your life? Do you count your blessings, naming them one by one to see what God has done? When we're down and out, we become anxious and despairing, slow to prayer, impatient to wait for God. When all is going well, we experience great deliverance. We celebrate the good, but so quickly forget to give thanks to the one to whom our praise is due. And to be honest, if that's our pattern of living, we will never be happy. No form of deliverance will ever satisfy until we see the giver himself rather than the gift as our delight. Our tender-hearted, compassionate, intervening father is our true delight, which is what we must take away from this book. If only the Jews could have seen the big picture, what we get to see today. What do we get to see? We see more than just a Persian king who makes laws and has some powerful ring that he can use however he wants. We see a foreshadowing of another great king who would also take off his signet ring to reverse a curse. Our father, God himself, in the heavenly places, took off his signet ring and threw it down to earth in the form of a man to reverse the curse that our father, Adam, had initiated. Like Esther, Christ begged for the salvation of his kindred. And being the signet ring of God, he was the only eligible person to mediate between us. And he didn't just beg. Galatians 3 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of a law by becoming a curse for us. The ring was broken, destroyed, smashed, so that we could live and the curse could be Broken, the law that demanded our death and cursed us because of sin has now been paid by the Son of God. He became a curse hanging on a tree so that in Christ we might be redeemed and set free from the law that kills. This is our great reversal that the Jews were slow to see. We were cursed and now we are heirs of eternal life through Jesus Christ thankful in all things, fighting a spiritual war by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you're still under the curse, come and be set free. God sent his signet ring into the world to reverse your enmity with a holy God. He is your only hope. And family, if you're redeemed, we invite you to put on the spiritual armor 
and join us in this battle in defeating sin and temptation, fighting for God's irrevocable truth. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the Word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com or you can call us directly at 828-286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.